Okay. The conviction that there is right and wrong, there is good and evil, has proved a very stubborn belief amongst humanity. It's persisted through all generations and all, all cultures. Philosophers, if you go to the philosophy department at UWA, they're always arguing about whether you can find any real basis for morals. Is there any reason which I can say you ought to do this? Not just you could or you might like to, but you ought to. And the answer basically, especially for those who don't believe in God, is no. You can't generate an ought from an is. The sky is blue, so you should do what? Nothing. Beer makes you happy, so you should nothing. It's, it's just an is. You, you can't generate moral imperative just from an is. There's no moral obligation to do anything. Uh, one of the main ways that people think about it in our culture is called utilitarianism, which says you should do the thing that brings the greatest happiness for the greatest number, or something like that. But you, I think you should answer, why should I? What's the moral obligation to do what's best for the greatest number of people, or brings their happiness? Besides which, it's very hard to calculate how things will work out. You, you really can't predict most of the time whether it will produce more happiness for more people or not. And so, in our culture, most people these days just work on a more intuitive way to do ethics, to do morality. It's what I feel. I just think that's wrong. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't murder. It's got the yuck factor. It won't pass the pub test. What makes an act morally good or morally evil? Why should you do this and not that? Why should I do it? If you go with intuition, the difficulty is that different cultures, different times in history, different places in the world, what people intuitively think is good or evil changes and changes quite dramatically. We might have the sanctity of life in our Western culture, but most other cultures in the world don't have that as part of their moral intuition. Well, today we're looking at a part of the Bible that contains the Ten Commandments, a list of laws and rules about behaviour that comes from God himself, our creator. It's full of you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And it sounds like a really good candidate for finding a source of good and evil. And that's partly what we're going to ask today. Are the, are the Ten Commandments meant to be a sort of universal moral code? And probably of anything in the Bible... It's the part of the Bible that people are most familiar with. I've had many conversations with people out on the Oak Lawn and other places around uni where when they've found out I'm a Christian, they'll often say things like, oh, yeah, the Ten Commandments, they're great, aren't they? It's better known, I think, than even Jesus amongst many people. Well, let's think about these Ten Commandments. Israel and the Ten Words, as they're called, not the Ten Commandments, but normally they're referred to in the Bible as the Ten Words given by God to Israel. And this is actually the second time. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is 40 years after the first time God gave these laws, these commands, to the people of Israel. You see that mentioned in uh, that early verse, verse 2, the Lord God made a covenant with us at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, 40 years before this. Now, if you weren't here for the first couple of talks this semester when Matt took us through Deuteronomy 1 to 4... I recommend you go to the CU website and have a listen to them. They're terrific. But the Ten Commandments coming here raise lots of questions. 
Who are they for? Are they for all people? For Indians and Inuits and and Aussies? Are they for Christians? If I'm a Christian who believes in Jesus, are, are they for me? And what's their relationship to all the other laws that God gave Israel? You see, here's a basic structure of the book of Deuteronomy. It's four speeches by Moses. And if you have a look at that big block, verses, uh, sorry, chapters 12 to 26, that is full of the laws and instructions, the statutes that God gave the people of Israel through Moses. But the Ten Commandments are before this. They're separated from it. They're, they're distinct from it. This is back in chapter 5, where the main purpose of Moses is to encourage the Israelites to love and obey the Lord as they enter the land. So they're different. It's clear in that sense that they're somehow foundational for Israel. They're a headline in Moses' preaching. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to ask what's the context of the Ten Commandments, what's their function, what's the content, and then what, what do we do now if we're Christians? I just think about the context first. This is a little map, like the one Matt used, but I couldn't find his, so this is a different one. It just traces, if you can recognise the Middle East at all, there's Egypt, uh, there's the, the Sinai Peninsula, there's uh, Palestine up in the, the top right-hand corner. And the dotted line is sort of the, um, the, the trek of the exodus, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. They were rescued out of Egypt. They went down to Mount Sinai, Horeb, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Then they wandered up towards the edge of the Promised Land to 12, Kadesh Barnea, where God said, now's the time to go in and possess the land I promised to give you. But they balked. They wouldn't trust God. And so that generation died out. God sent them wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're back on the plains of Moab, 16, if you're looking at the map. And God says, now is the time to go into the promised land. That is, God has rescued Israel from that slavery. Powerfully, he rolled up his sleeves, persuasively, that he alone is the true God and their God. To give them this new life in the land of Palestine. And now they're about to get the land. And at that point, Moses reiterates these Ten Commandments. God's purpose to get you into the land stands. The promise will be kept. And this is part of my covenant with you. So if you listen carefully to verses 1 to 6, the, the sort of preamble. If you're a lawyer, you know that the preamble really matters. You've got to read it to make sense of what comes after. He says, firstly, that this is part of a covenant the ten words are part of this contract, exclusive relationship that God created with the people of Israel, between Yahweh and Israel. See, Israel, having been rescued from slavery, say, we want to be your people. We want you to be our God. We want to belong to you in this exclusive, loyal relationship. And these ten words, ten commands, are what God requires of Israel as his people. That is, who are they for? Well, God didn't broadcast them to the world. He didn't fly over the whole globe and drop them as pamphlets from, from the aeroplane so everybody in the world would know. He only gave them to Israel. And when did he give them to Israel? Well, he gave them to Israel after he'd rescued them from slavery. You can see that in verse 6. He didn't turn up in Egypt when they were slaves and say, here's the Ten Commandments. If you can keep them well enough, I'll rescue you. 
He didn't say, if you keep these, I'll be kindly disposed to you and then we've got something going. Instead, when they didn't even have the Ten Commandments, he rescued them. He rolled up his sleeves and humbled the most powerful man in the world at that time. He crushed the most powerful gods of the world at the time. He smashed the most powerful army in the world. It was a spectacular rescue. It was mission impossible made possible by God. And what did Israel do? They just watched. It just happened around them. It happened to them. And then they rejoiced in what God had done. See, in that rescue operation, God created a relationship, a bond with the people. He showed himself to be their God. And they became his people. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. It's like Christians. God saves us. He sends Jesus to die for us. And then he tells us how he wants us to live. He doesn't say, live this way and then I'll save you. And thirdly, we see it's personal. It was not with our ancestors the Lord God made this covenant, but with us, with all of us here who are alive today. Now, if you're a pedantic, it's not true what Moses said. It was their parents who were there at Mount Horeb. Not, not this generation. They were still to twinkle in the eyes of their parents. But he's making a point, an emphatic point, that although you weren't actually there physically, you were there in God's mind. Literally, verse 3 says, with us, we, these ones, here today, all of us living. Like bang, 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 you guys. So at the very least, it means that when God rescued their parents from slavery... He intended this generation to enjoy that freedom and the next generation and the next generation. When God made a covenant with their parents, he included this generation in all the benefits, giving them the land and that relationship of being his people. And when he spoke the ten words from the mountain to their parents, these are words he wanted this generation to hear as well. Moses makes a big thing of the fact that they heard God's words, they didn't see God. Matt showed us back in chapter 4 that when the Lord God spoke from Mount Sinai, from Horeb, he spoke, he didn't appear, there was only a voice. So how do you worship a God? How do you revere a God who speaks to you but doesn't appear to you? Well, not by making an image, not by polishing it and bowing down to it, but obviously what you do is you listen. You trust. You obey. That's how you worship a God who speaks to you. And these words of God address each individual Israelite. The you at the beginning of these, you shall not, you shall not, is actually the second person singular. You shall not steal. You shall not worship another God. You shall not commit adultery. It's personal. They're meant to take it for me, not just for us. Let's think about the function then. We're now in a position to see that the function of the Ten Commandments for Israel is not to somehow help them save themselves. They're not to think, well, if I do God's will, then God will give me what I need, what I want. It's not a way of doing my bit so that God becomes my God. No, God's done that by his saving work out of Egypt. But it became a persistent aberration in Israel and amongst people today. 
to think that somehow if I just keep God's laws, that will be my salvation. If I keep them, I'll be okay with God. It's partly it's the human heart. It's partly that that's how most religions work. It's very explicit in a, a religion like Islam. You do the right thing, then you get the reward of heaven. But in Christianity, salvation has always been by God's grace, God's generosity, God's work alone. And obedience is always a response to having been saved. It was for Israel. It is for Christians today. So how were these ten words, these ten commands, supposed to function if not to save them? Well, a way of thinking about it is they're sort of like headline values for God's people. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, a headline is something that stands out. Uh, it's before the other commands. It stands outside them and sort of underneath them. There's hundreds of commands and statutes that God gave Israel, all chapters 12 to 26, about marriage and setting up a temple and, uh, and Levites and how you treat parents and what you do when you harvest. But these are the sort of values that underpin them. They show what God values. And he values a whole swag of things. Human life, loyalty, family life. These are not arbitrary moral laws. They reflect what God himself is like, what he loves and what he doesn't love. And they're set out in this way because as they stand, they have a permanent relevance for Israel. You read the rest of the laws and they're, they're tailored to the particular situation. They're going to go into the land. There'll be farmers in the land and the laws are all around that, details of farming and harvesting. But this stands outside that. It never changes because what God values never changes. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the content. We see quite easily that there's sort of two focuses in the Ten Commandments. One of it is this relationship with God, a vertical component. The other is the relationship with each other, the horizontal component. And in the world that these were given, that's surprising. It's also surprising, I think, in today's world. Remember having a conversation out on the oak lawn with a with a guy, and he said, "Yeah, the Ten Commandments—they're great, aren't they? I, I keep the Ten Commandments." I said, "Great, I'm really glad to, to hear that. Which ones have you kept?" He said, "Well, um, there's one about murder, isn't there?" I said, "Yeah, there is." He said, "Yeah, I kept that one." And there's one about adultery. I said, "Yeah, there's one about adultery." And he sort of did a double turn. I thought he didn't say, "I've kept that one." And asked him, what do you think is the first command in the Ten Commandments? He said, surely it's the murder one, isn't it? I said, no, the first command is you shall have no other gods before me. And he sort of gulped and said, gee, I, 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 I think I've stuffed that one up. And I said, the third one is you're not to blaspheme God's name. He said, I really am stuffed then, aren't I? You see, he thought that probably all the Ten Commandments were the horizontal. It didn't cross his mind that the vertical would be there, that God might care how we relate to him, what sort of relationship we might have with our creator and saviour. But God does care. But it's also different to the religions of the ancient world because those really usually only had the vertical. The gods, Baals, those other things, they didn't care how you treated your neighbour. They just wanted, to, they wanted you to treat the God well. Then they'd be happy and they'd give you what you want. 
But the true and living God, it's both and. It's vertical and horizontal. Why is the horizontal there? Well, clearly, obviously, because God cares about your neighbour. God cares about the people around you. And therefore he cares how you treat them, how I treat them. He cares about you and how people treat you. And so these two sort of tables they're often called, the, the Godward ones, the neighbour ones. But let me ask you, where do you think it changes? Let's have a quick look at the Ten Commandments. Where do you think it moves from Godward to horizontal? Is it the Sabbath? Is that about how we relate to God? Or is it about something else, how we relate to our neighbour, like our servants and our animals? Well, I'll come back to that. Second thing to say about the content is, they state the obvious, mostly. For example, have a look at the sixth command. You shall not murder. Now just stop and think for a minute. What does that mean? Well, notice it's not you shall not kill. It's you shall not murder. And murder is a particular word that means killing when you shouldn't kill. That is, it's telling you something that's pretty obvious. When you're not supposed to kill somebody, don't. Like, you can figure that out yourself, can't you? It's not hard to figure out. Most of them are like that. Don't steal. It doesn't say don't take anything. It's don't steal. Don't take something that isn't yours. Don't commit adultery, which is don't have sex with the person you shouldn't have sex with. They're all in a sense, completely, well, you could say, there's nothing new there. You're not learning anything new. All but one of them is don't. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make an image. They're things that Israel already knew. And now God makes it explicit, don't do it. And if you think about the negatives, in a sense what they do is they put a boundary around. Yeah, there are things you shouldn't do. But it doesn't tell you what to do within the boundaries very much. A little bit on your parents. It's the only positive one like that. But all the rest is, is actually just saying, don't go outside this. Within the laws like this, there is a huge amount of freedom. Now, the, the laws that come in chapters 12 to 26 will limit that a little bit. They'll give you a bit more direction. But at this point, they're quite different to most other religions. Islam has the five pillars. This is what you must do, including your pilgrimage. Buddhism has seven practices that need to dominate your life. But that's not what these are like. These protect an enormous amount of freedom. But what is protected? That's what we want to look at next. If these are headline values, what do they protect? What are the values that they embody? Now, it's worth stopping at this point and seeing that as God gives the Ten Commands, it's like he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. He's telling you what he loves and what he hates. And that's a wonderful thing. If you think about some of your own friendships, it really helps if you know what they like and don't like, doesn't it? So if you know that Hannah likes neat hair, then you know what to do, don't you? You know that combing, brushing your hair, having it nice, that's exactly what she wants. You can bring a smile to her face. And God wears his heart on his sleeve. But wearing your heart on your sleeve has a risk of the opposite as well, doesn't it? You hear Hannah likes it, you having neat hair. Do you, Hannah? Yeah, yeah, okay. You might react by going... because <laughs> you want to upset her. So as soon as you know, then you have power. You have power to please and power to harm. 
And God reveals the things that he hates. He hates murder. He hates stealing. He hates idols. He hates false testimony. These commands don't reveal what's right and wrong. They just tell you what God thinks about them, the things that he hates. So the first two commandments, he hates worship of other gods. When Israel betrayed the God who made them, who rescued them, when they're disloyal to that God, when they make even an image of that God, they do God an injustice. They insult him. And God says he's jealous. He, He won't put up with that. He loves loyalty. He loves being treated as he really is, which you do too, don't you? Or the Sabbath. Sabbath law. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, just with the person next to you, I want you to discuss this question. Does it show that God values work, work for six days, or God values rest, rest for one day? Just have a chat, see if you can work out which the focus is. Is it work or is it rest? Have a chat. It's good to hear the chatter. Anybody willing to put, put up their hand and hazard a guess? Is it more about work or is it more about rest? Rest. Why do you say that, Seamus? Yeah, although that's not mentioned here, is it? Come back to that in a minute. Anybody else want to hazard rest? Because that's what I'm going for, just, just so you know. It's two things, I think. It's the focus of it. So he doesn't say, you're to work and your servants and your animals, you know, work for six days. It's, yeah, work for six days, but you and your servants and your animals rest for one day. And the reason he gives is because you were slaves in Egypt. That's the reason he gives why he's giving this command. I presume he's not saying, remember slavery, wasn't it so terrific? You could work seven days a week. Aren't you glad you could do that? No, he's saying when you were slaves, you couldn't work, you couldn't rest. That was the issue. Masters told you what to do day in, day out. You could never rest, but I've rescued you out of that slavery. Now you can rest. Yeah, normal life is working, but I want you to rest for one day in seven. Seamus, thanks for bringing up that the reason, uh, the other reason God gives for the Sabbath back in Exodus was this God resting on the seventh day. It's a different reason in Deuteronomy 5, which sounds a little suspicious. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think both show us that God values rest. He rescued Israel so they could rest. God himself, when he created, rested. Why did God rest in Genesis chapter 2? Was it because he was exhausted? Six days of creating the world was just so hard work. The sweat was dripping. He needed a shower. He just needed to chill out for a few hours to, to recuperate. No, <laughs> it was easy. Let there be light, and there was. Now He rested to enjoy the product of his work. Because life is not all about work. It's about enjoying what you've done and achieved in your work. It's about rest. And so he says to Israel, protect that rest. Have it. Enjoy it. He says, make that seventh day holy, which doesn't necessarily mean religious. It means different, special. So it's not he's saying you're supposed to go to church on your Sabbath. 
They didn't have churches back then, and I doubt your animals wanted to come with you. <laughs> no, it's about resting, recreation and enjoyment. God values rest, and the age to come will be perfect rest. Well, have a look at verses 16 and 18. We see that God values marriage and family life. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so you might live long, and you shall not commit adultery. And the 20th century and 21st century, all sorts of projects have been launched to try and eradicate families. The 1920s in Russia, after the revolution, they tried to get rid of families as a structure. They saw them as bourgeoisie and, and, and something to, to get rid of. Critical theory in the last 20 years or so has, has, has undertaken a similar enterprise to try and break down family loyalty and especially the authority that parents might have over children. But God values families. The two biggest dangers to family are adultery and children dishonouring, disrespecting parents. And so two of the commands deal with that. Because the strength and stability of a family depends on the strength and stability of the marriage. And that requires exclusive sexual fidelity. In a similar way to the fidelity and loyalty that it needs to be between God and his people. And if you read the gossip magazines, you'll see the way that adultery destroys lives and marriages and families and children and the very fabric of our society. And children are to, not to dishonour and disrespect parents. And the law has really the two ends of life in focus there. Young children and youth who defy their parents and run wild. And when that happens, what happens not just to the family but to our culture and society? the whole society starts to break down. If you're going to be a school teacher, I'm really glad you're going to do it. But what you'll find is that a lot of the kids in your class don't have respect for their parents. There isn't that family um, structures that they've grown up in, the security of it, and you've got to do some of that parenting. And it's very hard when they don't respect you. In fact, it's almost impossible. Please go and do it. We need you to do it. But it's an impossible job when children have no respect for their parents and therefore for others. But it's also true the other end of life. Old parents now in our culture are often neglected and exploited by their adult children. Elder abuse is increasing. Now God seeks to protect marriages and family life from beginning to end. He loves faithful, loving marriages. He loves families where parents are honoured and the family holds together joyfully. Well, quickly, we look at murder. Um, God values human life. From the youngest to the oldest, from the uh, abled to the disabled, from the economic resource to the economic burden, from the powerful to the weak, every life matters to God. You shall not murder. False testimony. You shall not uh, give false testimony against your neighbour. Uh, this speaks of justice and truth. Because if the testimony in court is wrong, if it's false, that sends innocent people to jail and exonerates guilty people. And if you can't trust the courts, then lies and corruption start to infect every aspect of our society and culture. And in that situation, the weak are crushed under the jackboots of the strong. The key is honest witnesses. That's where it starts. That, that, that's what holds it up. 
And lastly, we see in verse 21, the last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or anything that belongs to him. God cares about your heart. Coveting is that strong desire that feeds stealing and murder and lying and adultery. No wonder Jesus says that you can commit adultery in your imagination. Well, let's lastly quickly think about Christians and the Ten Commandments. Because we're not Israel. And we're not under the old covenant between Israel and God. We're under the new covenant that God has established in Jesus if you're a Christian. So what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Well, the first thing to say is the Ten Commandments are revelatory. God is wearing his heart on his sleeve. It reveals the core values that God holds, the things that he cares about. Now, it doesn't reveal some sort of universal moral code, the categorical imperatives. It's not that we don't know that that murder is wrong. It's not that God gave these commands and suddenly, oh, do you know that murder is wrong? I never would have guessed. That doesn't work like that. It assumes you know it already. It reinforces, though, that there are things that God hates and God loves. That's very personal for God. And God still loves and hates the same things. He, he hasn't changed. And that appears pretty straightforward. You'd think when Israel got these commands that they'd do well, wouldn't you? But they didn't. And the story of the Old Testament is the ongoing saga of Israel failing again and again and again. Because corrupt human hearts will find a way to corrupt even good laws. Israel often just stuffed it up completely. <laughs> Straight after getting the commands the first time, they committed idolatry. They make an idol, this golden calf. Greed gets in time and time again, especially from the, those in power. You might know the story of David and Bathsheba. Almost the best person Israel ever produced committed adultery and then murdered uh, the woman's husband. And the prophets again and again called out the kings and the people for the way they just smashed the values of God and broke the commandments. And I take it we're no different, really. We're human just like them. So they stuffed up, but they also misused them because when you get commands like this, what do corrupt hearts do? Well, they try to use them as a tool to justify yourself. I look at the commands and say, oh, yeah, I can keep all them. They're not too hard. And when, if I do keep them all, well, God owes me, doesn't he? I, I should be okay with God. He'll tick me off. And that way I can get away with living for myself and feel secure and smug at the same time. And Jesus calls it out sharply. You've heard it said, Jesus said to the people long ago, you shan't murder. Anyone who does murder is subject to judgment. Yeah, I know that. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So the human heart will minimise what God demands. He says, don't murder. Great, I, I can pull that down to I've never actually stabbed somebody. I've never pulled the trigger and killed somebody, so I'm okay. Jesus said, rubbish. <laughs> That's not being righteous. You're angry with someone, you want to kill them. Well, it's like you have then. Or adultery, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And that's every one of us blokes, isn't it? That's us. Yeah, I, I might be able to tick it off and say I've never actually slept with her, but I've done it. Jesus calls out our minimising and our desire to justify ourselves. And so the law becomes revelatory of just how corrupt 
our human hearts are. It's like a mirror I look into and I see, wow, that's what I'm really like. But the law has no power to change us. It can only condemn us. It can't generate the sort of love. It can't help me love the things that God loves. It just tells me that I shouldn't do what I do. It can't generate willing obedience. So the law enslaves us. It's likened in the New Testament to a babysitter trying to restrain a naughty toddler. You ever tried to do that? You, know, you put boundaries, you close the doors, you, you say, no, don't do that, don't, 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 and you're just forever chasing them saying, don't, because they want to do it. And then it condemns us because it shows our sin and offers no escape. We're enslaved. But this is the great news of Jesus. We were slaves, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, to liberate those under law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because we're sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba, Father. Jesus dies to take our condemnation. He gives us the spirit that enables us to have a new capacity to love, to honour God and to love my neighbour. I no longer need a law to tell me what to do, to restrain me, to hem me in. I'm not, the Christian life isn't one of constantly looking over my shoulder saying, which law might I be breaking now? And so my focus is redirected. Because what does law do? Law keeps pushing me inward. The law says don't steal, so where does my mind go? Have I stolen? Will I steal? Will I steal that software? It, it points me into myself and says don't do it, don't do it. But the focus is, is me. But Christ redeems us. So I can look out. So I can desire what is good for others. Are you still living under law? Hoping you can keep it adequately to be approved by God? Or maybe using God's law to, well, I can use that to stop me sinning. Whenever I'm tempted to do something, I say, well, the law says don't do it, so I better not do it. If that's you, you're in slavery still. Now come to Jesus. He's the end of the law. Trust in his death. And be liberated from law-keeping so you can love and serve.